Well, the first time I remember being terrified to speak to a large group, I was in the eighth grade. Jonathan Adams, you're next. That was the voice of my science teacher, Miss Bear. Uh, our whole school had gathered in our gymnasium for our annual science fair. And it was my turn to give that eight to 10 minute presentation. I still remember the seat that I was sitting in that morning. I remember walking up to the front of the gym, heart racing, can't catch my breath. Do you remember that feeling? <laughs> Some of you do. For a lot of people, those uh, feelings of butterflies tend to dissipate during high school, kind of get over that fear of public speaking. But that wasn't my story. I don't know why, but my fear of speaking to a large group actually got more intense as I got older. I was a, an English major in college, and one of the things we had to do our senior year was to give a big presentation to our peers. I dreaded that day all year long. And just like when I was in middle school, I remember where I was sitting that day. I remember my name being called, <sighs> heart racing. <sighs> I can't catch my breath. I also remember the feelings after I gave my presentation of being ashamed, of being embarrassed, of wanting to get out of that room as fast as I could before my friends had to come over and say, oh, you did a good job. Try to make me feel better. That fear stayed with me well into adulthood. Uh, after my wife and I were married, we'd been attending a church and we wanted to join. Now to join this church, wasn't this one by the way, to join this church you had to give your testimony uh, up at the front of the church. Now at, at that time, those nights, maybe 150, 200 people would come to that kind of thing. But the night that we joined, there was some kind of special services, like some big national speaker they brought in. Instead of 150 people, there were 800 people there that night. I remember coming into church, them taking us down to the front pew where we had to sit to get ready to go up. There was gonna be a couple songs that we sang as a congregation before the testimony started. And I remember as everybody else was singing those songs, there I was in that front pew, heart racing. <laughs> Can't catch my breath. That uh, national speaker who was there was also sitting on the front pew across the aisle from me. I remember during the songs, he looked over at me and he mouthed, are you okay? <laughs> well, the truth is I wasn't okay. I have dozens of stories just like that from when I was in middle school well into adulthood. Now you may be thinking, if you hate public speaking so much, I think you picked the wrong career, buddy. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> I've been explaining that to God for 15 years. In fact, when I first sensed God was calling me into ministry, we had some long discussions about that. Now, it may seem silly now, but not a lot of people know how close that fear came from keeping me from the path God wanted me to take. See, even though God had called me to something, and even though I knew it, 
there was a resistance to that call. Have you ever experienced a resistance when God called you to do something? Now, maybe it wasn't a fear of public speaking, but something internal, something inside you that threatened to keep you from the path God wanted you on? Well, this morning, I want to tell you the story of how God helps me overcome that fear and that resistance. Because in the life of a sojourner, there will always be resistance. There will always be reasons to avoid God's path and take our own path. But as we're going to see this morning, a sojourner pushes through that resistance and walks the path of obedience. So we are halfway through the book of Acts. We saw in uh, chapters 1 through 12, our Pioneers series, we saw the good news of Jesus Christ go out in those chapters to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And then two weeks ago, we transitioned to Acts chapter 13. Here we see that same message, the good news of Jesus Christ, now going beyond those ethnic borders into the ends of the earth. And during this series, we've been keying in on a few words that are going to define our series together. Remember these words? We're missional. We're ambassadors for Christ, transitional, we're citizens of heaven, and intentional, we are sojourners on this earth. Now, Paul and Barnabas, who we picked up with last week, are the perfect examples of these words. And last week, we picked up with them on their missionary journey into the ends of the earth. We saw in chapter 13 a few of the places that they went. We started in the island of Cyprus, remember that? We saw them encounter that false prophet, Elymas. We saw them uh, see the conversion of Sergius Paulus. And then from there, we traveled with them into Asia Minor up to Pisidian Antioch. Up there, we saw the first recorded message of the Apostle Paul. But we also saw the first time that he really encountered that strong persecution. And we saw that in those places, Paul got some scars and some wounds in ministry. We said that in the life of a sojourner, there will always be suffering. This week, we go to chapter 14, and we pick up where we left off as Paul and Barnabas track to a few new cities. First, Iconium in verses 1 to 7. Next, we're going to go to Lystra and Derby in verses 8 through 20. And finally, we'll track with them all the way back home as the missionary journey comes to a close at the end of chapter 14. Would you pray with me? As we jump into God's word this morning, Acts chapter 14. Father, we come to you this morning with expectations that you're going to meet us in your word. We take time out of our lives because we believe in the power of what you have spoken. Lord, don't let us waste this time. Speak to us through your word. Challenge us with your word. We're asking for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we left off in chapter 13 with Paul and Barnabas actually banished from Pisidian Antioch. Remember the way that chapter ended? They'd, uh, you know, wipe the dust off their feet and they move on. And so in Acts chapter 14, verse one, we read the next stop. 
Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now the first thing we see here is new city, but same strategy as we saw last week. They get to a new city, they go right to the synagogue. And just like we saw in the past, it's not just Jewish people here. You have Jews and Gentiles. In fact, our text says that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But this strategy of going to the synagogue first isn't the only thing that's going to be familiar to us. Verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So once again, our sojourners face opposition. Verse three, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now this is a a phrase we see from time to time in the book of Acts, signs and wonders or something like that. What do we make of this phrase uh, when we see it on the missionary journeys? If you think back into Luke's story, at the very beginning of Acts, for that matter, Luke has never been shy about recording extraordinary events. I mean, the book starts with Jesus floating up into heaven. Remember that? But we also see this as the apostles carry on the work of Jesus. And, uh, and, and so we see um, in Acts chapter 8, for instance, um, excuse me, Acts chapter 2, lost my train of thought for a second. We see in Acts chapter 2, uh, the ministry of Jesus Um, we see that these signs and wonders were used by him to accomplish a specific purpose. Go to that text in Acts chapter two. Next slide. Men of Israel, it says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So we learn that God attested the ministry of Jesus through mighty works and wonders, and signs. We also see this very thing in, later on, the uh, apostolic age. So in Acts chapter 8, when, P, uh, when Luke is referring to the ministry of Philip, we see this, and the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now, the important thing to know about these signs and wonders and miracles is that they were used by God to attest the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. And that's exactly what we actually see in our next verse, which was the one we read in Acts 14, where it says, the Lord bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So just as we saw with Jesus, just as we saw with the apostles, there's an authenticating power that God provides. And we see that in the ministry of Paul confirming his work. But despite that special anointing on Paul's ministry, this is how the city responds. Verse four. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Verse five shows us just how intense this turf war got when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now we talked last week about the suffering 
that Paul and his team faced. This week, let me add another word to our sojourner vocabulary. That's the word danger. Here in this city, they uncover a plot to stone them. In fact, if you don't picture Paul and his team under a constant threat of danger in these missionary journeys, you are not accurately picturing what this team faced. Growing up about once a year, we would travel to Louisville, Kentucky to visit my great aunt, my Aunt Jane. Now, my Aunt Jane never married, and uh, later in her life, she moved into one of the poorest neighborhoods in Louisville, Kentucky, an area called Smoketown. Now, this area was not just poor, it was also very dangerous. She had uh, bars on all the first floor windows and doors of her home. The whole second story was all boarded up, unusable. While she lived there multiple times, she had people break into her home. One time she was even the victim of an attempted rape in her own home. Uh, I remember her neighbor was a lady named Betsy, and um, Betsy had this like ravenous dog that lived in the backyard. You'd have to put on, she would put on like two jean jackets to go out there and feed this dog. Uh, but it was the kind of dog you'd want to have in a neighborhood like that. But the real problem in the 90s when we used to go and visit her uh, was the, the gang violence. All kinds of murder, all kinds of violent crime. I remember one time we were walking out of her house down onto the sidewalk to go to the corner store and get like a soda or something, my dad and my brothers and I, and she came to the door right when we were leaving. She said, if y'all hear gunshots, just get down on the ground. They're not shooting at you. Oh, that's comforting, right? Why did she stay there? Well, it was for ministry. My Aunt Jane lived right next door to a church where she served as a lay leader. And for decade after decade of her life, she ministered there to the poorest of the poor under constant threat of danger. When I was in college, I served in a, um, like a street evangelism ministry uh, in an area called Seville Square in Florida. Now, this wasn't like a particularly uh, dangerous neighborhood, uh, but there was some problems with drugs and prostitution. And uh, one of our team members one time did get robbed, so we were careful. We always made sure we were paired up and kind of aware of our surroundings. Uh, one time I was walking down the street with my friend Chris, and we heard a car that was coming up behind us. And it came up beside us and was just like creeping real slow right as we walked, all blacked out Cadillac. A couple moments go by, the car stops, window comes down a couple inches, we hear this voice in there, what do you think you're doing here? So uh, I looked at my friend Chris, I, I walked closer to the car, I said, uh, we're passing out Bibles and uh, inviting people to church. Well, when I said that, he rolls his window down the rest of the way, gets a big smile on his face, he says, oh man, my mom's a pastor which is not what I was expecting him to say. Um, that's about as close to danger as I have ever served in ministry. But Pastor Chris has told stories of taking youth groups to places like Cabrini Green in Chicago, places like Springfield, Ohio, places even in our own city. We support missionaries, Matt and Siobhan, who served down in Kensington, Philadelphia, one of the toughest neighborhoods on the East Coast, really, only about 30 miles from here. It's a special calling 
to serve in a constant threat of danger. And that's exactly what our sojourners do in city after city after city. Now, I don't think Paul and Barnabas were naive. I would argue they knew exactly what they were getting into. That region of Galatia that they served in, this region had spoken loud and clear. There was a lot of people in those areas that did not want Paul and Barnabas there. They wanted nothing to do with that message. Pisidian Antioch had made that clear. Iconium had made that clear. And yet, Paul and Barnabas, city after city, go on and on and on. Next up, the city of Lystra, (laughs) where it just gets worse. We read this part of the story in Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 20, and Luke begins their work here by actually describing an encounter that's going to shape their entire experience here. We read this in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. Have you ever walked into this building on a Sunday morning just like needing to hear a word from God? Have you ever tuned in online on a Sunday morning or later in the week and you just needed desperately to hear some truth? That's how I picture this man listening to Paul. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, remember those signs and wonders we talked about a little bit earlier? (laughs) Here we see one of those confirming miracles, God's authenticating power flowing through the Apostle Paul. But this particular miracle has a very unintended consequence. Listen to how the people of the city react. The text says, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. So if you can picture this scene, Paul and Barnabas walk into the city, they heal this man miraculously, and in response to this, the people of the city say, they must be gods, Now, there was a Roman poet named Ovid who, like a hundred years before this, had written uh, a myth of the gods Hermes and Zeus coming to this very city and performing miracles. And so evidently, when the people of the city see Paul and Barnabas do a miracle, they think, oh, this this legend has come true. Here they are. Hermes, who is in mythology the spokesperson of the god they associate with Paul, he did all the talking, And then Zeus, they associate with Barnabas. Now, the the funny thing about this scene is that the whole thing is happening in this native language of Lyconian. So it's likely that all of this is going on and Paul and Barnabas don't have much of an idea what's happening at all. My uh, my wife is half Korean, half Italian. 
I remember back when we were dating, um, we would go to these like big Korean gatherings, these house parties, and uh, I'd see my wife's mom and her aunts over in the kitchen looking at me and laughing. And uh, I'd say to Nadi, what are they saying about me over there? She would just laugh, <laughs> nothing. So, you know, I, I know a little bit about how Paul felt here. <laughs> we see here, somebody evidently fills Paul and Barnabas in on what's going on. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? Now we can laugh at it, but Paul was not laughing. In fact, he was mortified that this group is worshiping him. The text says that he tore his clothes. That's like a Jewish, you know, symbol of, of mourning. And then Hermes and Zeus break the news to this crowd that they're not actually Hermes and Zeus, or at least they try. We read this in the next verse. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you the good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So Paul here identifies God as the creator. And then he continues to talk to this city, still trying to get the focus off of himself and onto God. In past generations, he goes on, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So Paul tries to connect these people to the story of what God has been doing in their life. He identifies God as the creator and the provider. But even though he tried, <laughs> the people were barely convinced that he was telling them the truth. Look at verse 18. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. <sighs> now, one of the things I love about the book of Acts is the pace of the action. You can be reading an Acts, and one minute everything is going perfectly fine, and the next moment, something terrible happens. Coming out of a scene where we just saw the people of the city literally worshiping Paul and Barnabas as gods, you would never guess where our text goes next. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So here are these Jewish opponents from the last two towns Paul was in. They hunt Paul down. Some traveling like a hundred miles or more to catch up to him. The text says that they persuaded the crowds, I picture Paul and Barnabas having to listen on as these opponents spread lies about them. These opponents convinced the crowds, and then just like that, probably the Jews who were there picked up stones and probably right there in the street, stone Paul. Stoning was a Jewish form of execution actually prescribed, as you may know, sometimes in the Old Testament, but there's also plenty of examples in the Old Testament where stoning was just an act of mob violence. 
We see that with Moses in Exodus when the people wanted to stone him. We see it later with Moses and Aaron in the next book. That's what's going on here. It's really a terrifying scene. Supposing he was dead, the text tells us that he dragged, they dragged rather his body outside of the city. That's where you would take a body that wasn't even worth burying. But Paul was not dead. And I don't know if it's like a miracle or just an act of God's grace, but look at what the text says next. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. Now, our chapter is not done yet, but I want us to stop right here in the text for a moment. If you were in the Apostle Paul's shoes right now, what would you do next? You've given everything up to follow this call. You've gone city to city, unwanted, unwelcomed, beaten up. Now you've been stoned, left for dead. By some miracle, you wake up. What do you do next? See, we learn another characteristic of the life of a sojourner at this moment. For the life of a sojourner, they will always encounter crossroads. And that's where Paul is right now, at a crossroads. He's done a good job. He's been faithful with what God's asked him to do. Maybe it's time that Paul thinks about himself for once and takes the easy path. I can tell you if I were in Paul's shoes and I came to after being stoned, I'm probably getting up, thanking God for my breath, giving myself an A and going home. But what does Paul do? He rose up and he entered the city. Remember that resistance and that fear we talked about? <laughs> Paul pushes right through that and gets back on the mission that God had for him. And the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, the very cities where the people who attempted their murder lived strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. These guys go right back into the heart of danger. Some of you may know the name Marcus Luttrell. He was part of the Navy SEAL teams, and uh, back in the, the 2000s, he was part of a, a mission that went sideways. Three people in his four-man team were killed. Many more were killed trying to get him out. He only survived barely uh, crawling through the hills of Afghanistan. Hollywood made a movie about his story called Lone Survivor. It's really an incredible story if you read it. But one of the most amazing things about his story is that when he came back to the States, 
and got healed up. He signed right back up and went back into the battle. Now, when he was asked about that later, he said where he's from in Texas, when you get your rear end kicked in a fight, you get back into the fight. Now, I don't know if that's how the Apostle Paul would have put it, but I can tell you that he and Barnabas are operating with courageous faith, not fear. Willing to risk their lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of these new churches that they planted. Verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. They come to these places, they care so much about the churches, they want to make sure they have good leaders in place. Were they afraid? We don't have evidence of that. They pushed through it, though, and took care of what God had asked them to do. Verse 24, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. So they are here at the end of their journey, retracing all of their steps, going back to the places where they worked. And then finally, missionary journey uh, number one comes to a close as Luke wraps up this chapter. And from there, they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. (laughs) I imagine the joyous celebration when they got back to home base. Probably told them all the stories we've been studying the last couple weeks and probably a lot more. (laughs) What a journey they had. What a journey that Acts chapter 13 and 14 shows us from their home base to the island of Cyprus up into Asia Minor and all the way back. But now at the end of missionary journey number one, what if we zoom out and look at the big picture of what Luke teaches us in that travel log? Remember what we said last week, the the wise reader of Acts doesn't just try to memorize all the facts and the dates and the places and even satisfied with knowing the big picture. The wise reader also asks another question. What can we learn about the life of a sojourner? Do you remember how missionary journey number one started all the way back at the beginning of Acts 13. At that point in Acts 13, we meet this church in Antioch who's worshiping the Lord and fasting. And out of that, remember, the Holy Spirit miraculously calls Paul and Barnabas to this great work that he has for them. But what I love about the next two chapters is that we get a very realistic picture of what it's like to follow the call of God. See, the Holy Spirit called them to a mission, but he doesn't line their path with rose petals, does he? See, it's one thing to recognize a call from God. It's a whole other thing to live that call out day in and day out. 
If we learn one thing from Paul in this journey, it's that when you're sojourning for God, fulfilling the call of God on your life over and over again, you will come to a crossroads. Do I take the easy path or the difficult one? Now, the easy path is a path we all know well. It's the path of least resistance. This is the path of ease, the path of comfort, the path of me first, the path of avoiding fear. When Paul came to on the outskirts of Lystra, this is the path that frankly would have made a lot of sense for Paul to take. But what's the other path? The path of full obedience. This is the path of difficulty, the path of sacrifice, the path of others first, the path of facing our fears. This is the path that Paul did take when he went right back into the heart of danger. So how about your life? Has God ever called you to something and you stood at these crossroads? Maybe it was a ministry opportunity. Maybe a step of faith. Maybe you stood at these crossroads after a lifelong battle with an addiction. Maybe God has put on your heart lately an area of your life that needs attention. Guys, maybe God has been calling you lately to love your wife, the one you promised to love and cherish. Maybe to focus on a relationship with one of your kids that you can remember looking at them in the hospital but now somehow that relationship has gone south. Maybe it's another area of your life. Maybe it's a next step here. Maybe it's your finances. Have you ever stood at this crossroads? Maybe this morning you're standing at this crossroads. Remember that, that fear of public speaking I talked about earlier? I can tell you that many, many times I have been tempted to take the path of least resistance. Even back when I was first called into ministry, I was so close to rejecting that call, taking the path of ease, the path of comfort, the path of avoiding fear. I remember back in college, I was so desperate to try to work on that fear. I was like binge listening to messages on fear. I ran across a sermon from John Piper. I don't even remember what the text was, but he told a story in that message that resonated with me because he told the story of his own fear of public speaking. Uh, he said he had been at his college over the summer and uh, one day, the college chaplain had approached him and asked him, would you be willing to pray 
to open our chapel service. He said, uh, how long would I have to pray? The chaplain said, oh, 30 seconds. John Piper said, the most amazing words came out of my mouth next. Okay, I'll do it. Now he describes the next couple days of just walking around the campus, worrying and thinking about this 30-second prayer. He said he memorized that prayer cold. <laughs> and as he was pacing on campus, he prayed to God, God, if you help me get through that 30-second prayer, I promise I will never say no to another speaking engagement because of fear. Now, when I heard him make that commitment to God, I turned the message off, closed my laptop, and that day, I made that same commitment to God. I won't say no out of fear. That story was the encouragement that I needed to take the path of obedience in that area of my life. It's a story that still gives me strength to take a path of obedience. Now, I'm not saying I take the path of obedience in every area of my life. I don't want to get struck down by lightning up here, okay? But as far as I know, I've kept that commitment before God. I have not turned down an opportunity out of fear. Over time, little by little, one small opportunity at a time, <laughs> I learned that you people really aren't that scary. <laughs> uh, by God's grace, he put a calling on my life. And by God's grace, he helped me to obey it. Now one more time, how about your life? Has God called you to do something? Do you ever stand at this crossroads? I was inspired by the example of John Piper. Maybe you could be inspired by the example of our sojourner, Paul. He had a calling on his life. And over and over again, he pushed through that resistance and took the path of obedience. Need another example? How about Jesus? Isn't this the crossroads he faced at the end of his life? When he was crying out in agony in the garden, would you let this cup of suffering pass from me? When he hung on the cross, gasping for air, and the thought crossed his mind, I could call down 10,000 angels right now and get out of here. Aren't you glad he didn't take the path of least resistance, the path of ease, the path of comfort, the path of me first, the path of avoiding fear? Aren't you glad Jesus chose the path of full obedience, the path of difficulty, of sacrifice of others first, and of facing fear. I think this is what Paul gets, out at the, gets at, rather, at the end of his life. We read at the end of 2 Timothy these words, the time of my departure has come. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have taken the path of obedience. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also all who loved his appearing. Now, the Apostle Paul wasn't a perfect man. Remember, this is a guy who killed Christians. But he finished well. He lived the life of a sojourner. Have you heard the story of the two old men? Two old men, both at the end of their life, both looking out at the same water, both feeling the cool breeze on their face. But their thoughts are totally different. Time after time, one of the men resisted God's leading. His life was ruled by fear. He cherished ease, he cherished comfort, he cherished security. He oriented his life around himself. He took the path of least resistance. And now his thoughts are filled with regrets. The other man wasn't perfect, but more often than not, he didn't say no out of fear. He endured difficulty and sacrifice. He oriented his life around other people. He took the path of obedience. And now at the end of his life, his thoughts are filled with satisfaction. The kind of satisfaction that only comes at the end of a life marked by obedience. So which man or woman do you want to be at the end of your life? Let's be like our sojourner, Paul. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. I took the path of obedience. That's an example that you and I can follow. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples that you give us many examples of people who were following you who had some resistance but through the strength that you provided followed the path of full obedience. Father, in fact, Jesus Christ is the only one who followed the path of perfect obedience. That's our example that's the one we can follow even today. I don't know where the crossroads are that these folks may be standing at. I don't know, maybe somebody watching online who's right now standing at the crossroads. The path of least resistance looks good. What if they followed the example of Jesus and took the path of obedience? What could you accomplish in their life? Father, I ask you for strength. We pray to you for that because it's not within ourselves. And we trust you, Lord, that through your grace, you will help us sojourn and follow that example we have. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.